Good morning. Well, we're all out of time after reading that, so we'll head home early. No, I'm just kidding. Cowboys played on Thursday, so this is going to be like three hours. There's no rush. Welcome. If you're new, my name is Jared Lawson, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 19. Like Jeff just read, we have a lot, a lot to do this morning. Uh, the past several weeks, really, 1 Corinthians is written in kind of these different sections. The church is really a mess, and so Paul is like, okay, i got a lot to write to you guys. I'm going to take it piece by piece. And kind of the piece we've been in since chapter 12 uh, is dealing with spiritual gifts. Uh, and, and more kind of at a foundational level, how is the church, you guys, meant to relate to one another? When you come into the gathering, how are you meant to behave towards one another? How are you meant to use your gifts? And so we've seen teachings like Paul saying, we are one body, Christ's body, but we're many members of that one body. And each and every member has these different gifts, all given by the Spirit, and each are indispensable. There's none that are unnecessary. In fact, you rely on those that you think are the weakest. And then in chapter 13, the past couple weeks, we've been walking through what, what is the core of all of this love. If you have all the gifts in the world, but you don't have love, you don't have that one thing, none of the gifts matter. And so now Paul is going to move to chapter 14, where he's going to actually kind of drill down and get more practical with the Corinthians. Now that he's established, love is the very center. Now we get to talk about how those gifts flow out of that heart of love. But again, we have a lot to do today. We've got to kind of review different views. There's some negatives of being 2,000 years down the line, uh, and that is different views have uh, developed. So we've got uh, cessationism and continuationism, different views that we'll talk about. We've got to talk about prophecy and tongues. What are those gifts? What are the different views of those gifts? And then we have to preach through 19 verses. So uh, it's a lot, but the good news is by the end of today, by the end of this sermon, there will be no more debate. It will all be solved. If everyone would just tune in, obviously that's not true. At best, you're just going to be kind of invited into the debate. So don't, uh, don't prep for, or prep for disappointment. That's how I like to start my sermons. Uh, the actual good news is no matter where you fall on, you know, the gifts, you believe they're around for today, you believe that they have ceased, Paul's point is going to apply to all of us. The goal of your gifts, whether administration or healing or whatever it may be, is to build up the church. That's Paul's point. He's going to talk specifically about tongues and prophecy, but that point applies to all of us. So when we get into the verse, we're going to see three really simple things that Paul's going to talk about. The goal of the gifts, building up the church, how your gifts fail, and how your gifts succeed. The goal of the gifts, how they feel, uh, fail, and how they succeed. Let me pray, and then we will jump into just kind of a theological review of cessationism and continuationism. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you that there is uh, grace for us humans. Uh, when we wrestle with your word, we come to different conclusions, and we fight about those, and we try to be faithful. And so I pray that as we do that this morning, uh, you will give us a almost mysterious sense of unity, uh, that your spirit would minister to us, that as we, our minds are kind of informed of what are the gifts, are they around today, things like that. But even, even deeper, you administer to our hearts of how do we view ourselves as a part of this body, and that you would rid us of pride and selfishness and anything that might want to take our eyes off of you and our brothers and sisters and put them back on us, that you would do a profound work and we'd be eternally satisfied in you and actually be free to love one another. So help us as we go through this, Lord, we pray in the name of your Son, 
Amen. Okay. Before we dive in, let's do a little bit of theology. Jeff uh, gave a kind of more extensive theological review last week than I'm going to give today. So if you want to go back and listen to that, you can. Uh, But we'll have a graphic that was up there. Let's see. Wait for it. There it is. Okay. Last week, it said creationism on that side, and we figured out the problem. Instead of continuationism, it said creationism. Our computer autocorrects it because our computer is cessationist, and it didn't want you (laughs) thinking that the gifts are still around. Uh, So we we have a bit of a scale. There's two views. Uh, Cessationism, the belief that the gifts have ceased. They're no longer around today. The sign gifts, I should say, tongues, prophecy, healing, the miraculous gifts. And then continuationism, the idea that they're still around for today, should be sought after, should be practice, but there's, uh, again, this isn't just two, str- two held views, it's a, it's, there's a scale there. So let's look at cessationism. Am I pointing to the right? Yeah, boom. Cessationism first. This is the belief that the miraculous gifts at some point have ceased. So tongues, prophecy, the two we're going to talk about today, and healing and then working of miracles, although that's kind of generic. Those miraculous sign gifts have ceased either uh, with the death of the apostle, the last apostle, or the closing of the canon, or when the gospel has spread uh, a certain amount or something like that. So there's debate on when the gifts ceased within cessationism, but they all agree that the gifts have ceased. Okay, so uh, basically everything we're going to talk about today, a cessationist would say, that's for Corinth, not for us, because prophecy and tongues have ceased a long while ago. So, so people who hold this view would be guys like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, modern-day guys like Tom Schreiner, uh, Johnny Mack, John MacArthur. I call him Johnny Mack because we're buds. Uh, that's not true. He, uh, he has no clue who I am. Uh, so those guys would be cessationists. And then the other uh, end of the spectrum would be continuationism. People that believe, as the name suggests, all the gifts, including tongues, healing, prophecy, uh, are, ha- have continued to today and should be sought after. And especially in continuationism, there's a pretty big spectrum. So you have, Jeff again talked about this last week, people that would be considered cautious continuationists. People who would say, you know, the gifts, they're still available, but they're maybe not normative. And then you would have kind of slammed against the wall Pentecostals uh, who would say the gifts are normative. And in fact, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. (gasps) We don't believe that here. Uh, So there's a huge scale. Advocates for continuationism would be John Piper, D.A. Carson, Sam Storms, Wayne Grudem, Jesus, people like this that we know. I'm just kidding. I've shown my cards. Okay, I've shown my cards. I'm just kidding. Jesus doesn't tell us what he thinks. Uh, So here's the important thing to see, Parkway. Uh, Parkway does not have an official position on either of these. We have elders uh, kind of all along the spectrum. Uh, And Jeff last week read uh, five points that we all believe as elders that we all agree on that I'm not going to read now for the sake of time, but again, you can go back and listen to those. That's the first thing to see. Parkway does not have a specific dis- uh, uh, position. We've decided this isn't an issue we're going to divide the church over. We have kind of a diversity of opinions here. And then the second thing to see is neither of these are stupid. Please uh, be careful of the unhelpful caricature that either says cessationism, just uh, they hate the spirit and they worship the Bible, something ridiculous like that, or to put all continuationists in the same bucket of like the craziest abuse you've ever seen. Please avoid that. Neither one of these are, are, are stupid or dumb views. But a big thing we are going to have to wrestle through 
especially as we look at uh, this chapter, all of chapter 14, is we are 2,000 years down the line, which means there's been a lot of opportunity to abuse uh, the gifts, no matter where you are on uh, the spectrum. Uh, Zach taught several weeks ago uh, uh, in our theological equipping class on uh, the beginnings of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, We didn't have TEC this morning, so you've got like a free space in your brain for like a TEC lesson. Go back and re-listen to that lesson. The movement is marked by really, really, really bad leaders. The prosperity gospel does come out of the charismatic movement. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel comes out of the charismatic movement. There's so many leaders that had massive moral failures, whether it was multiple affairs or uh, extortion, things like that. So the, there's, there's a huge abuse in the main movement. And then secondly, we, we just have in our minds, probably when you think of the gifts, everyone has either heard of or experienced what is often called kind of charismania, just the crazy, everyone screaming, barking like dogs, kind of flopping on the floor type thing. You got that image in your brain. Uh, my wife and I spent several years in an organization that has Pentecostal roots. Uh, it was technically non-denominational now, but it, it was started in Pentecostalism. And so uh, there were several kind of morning meetings with, with all these different schools that would come together, and they would act like the Corinthians. They would be uh, speaking in tongues. No one would be interpreting. It would just kind of be craziness. And me, you know, holy Jared that I am, would be like, wait a minute, this seems off. Let me thumb through the Bible. Aha, it's wrong. And so I would go to the leaders with 1 Corinthians 14 and be like, okay, I'm not trying to get in your face, but everything we just said, Paul says, don't do that. And they would say things to me like, Jared, you've got the Bible on the throne. You need to take the Bible on the throne, put the spirit back on the throne. And I would say, I thought, maybe I'm mistaken, I thought the spirit was the one that, you know, inspired the authors of the scriptures. The spirit is the author, so I should ignore the spirit to put the spirit on the throne. That doesn't make any sense to me. So we've all seen... These abuses, we've all heard the kind of people tolling, pulling the God told me card. And you go to rebuke someone for their sin and they say, oh, well, I just really felt like God told me to do this. And you're like, oh, great. I guess I can say nothing now that you pulled the God card. And it's ironic how that seems to perfectly line up with what you already want to do. Interesting. Uh, there's an old story of Charles Spurgeon, the great 20th century Baptist preacher. A man came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, the Spirit has told me that I'm to preach in your church this Sunday evening, so... You want to set that up or whatever? And Spurgeon was like, that's crazy. He has not said one thing to me. But when the Spirit tells me, we'll set that up. And the man, surprisingly, never preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The Spirit never uh, informed Spurgeon of that. So we've all seen the abuses. Here's my strong, strong, strong encouragement to you. Do not let your experience, particularly your bad experience, define your belief. Do not let your experience define your theology. Again, my cards, I'm a continuationist. Almost everything I've ever seen has been a sinful abuse. Almost everything. If there's anybody who wishes they could be a continuationist, it's me, okay? Then I could just be like, all this is wrong, right? Don't let your experience define your theology. If there was somebody who had a really uh, jerk of a dad, a real abusive father, and then they became a Christian. And every time they read about God being their father, it, it opens up this wound and it's this, they imagine this distant, evil, hateful God. How heartbreaking would that be? Why? Because one of the most glorious teachings of the scriptures, if not the most glorious, is that this unapproachable, holy God 
at Mount Sinai that says, Moses, tell everyone to get back. Don't even let animals come up to the mountain. They're going to die instantly. This God sends his son to cleanse you, adopt you into his family, puts his spirit inside you so that you can say, Abba, Father. You can run into his arms. What a beautiful teaching that can be missed. What a beautiful reality that can be missed if your experience colors your belief. So similarly with the gifts, you can land on any side of the spectrum that you want, but it better be for theological reasons, not just because some dummy was sinful and abused the gifts 10 years ago or whatever. Make sense? Okay. Again, we're out of time. I'm just kidding. Okay, let's move on to the actual text. So, so that's the spectrum. And as we read, here's what I'm not going to do because it would literally take four hours. I'm not going to say, here's how cessationists would read this. Here's how continuationists would read this. I'll say that some, but I can't do that with 19 verses. But everyone look at verse 1. We've got to move. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So don't miss those first two words. Again, remember the context. Remember what we've talked about these past two weeks. Pursue love. This is flowing out of Paul stopping everything and saying, if you don't have love, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, you can understand all mysteries, you can give up your body to martyrdom. It means nothing if it's not flowing from a heart of love. That's what all of this verse is, or this, this passage is going to flow out of, this heart of love. So pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So let's take some time. What is Prophecy. What's Paul talking about? What's the debate hinging on? When it comes to prophecy, okay, we all know the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, major, minor prophets, uh, which isn't how important they are, it's just the size of their books, why they were, uh, how they were organized that way. What is prophecy? So the debate between continuationists and cessationism hinges, hinges on one key question. I think we'll have it. Uh, wait for it. Key question, there it is. Is prophecy infallible, or is prophecy an infallible and authoritative message from God? That's the key question. Is prophecy an infallible and authoritative message from God? A cessationist will say, yes, therefore the gift has ceased. And a continuationist will say, no, therefore the gifts are around. Okay. Is prophecy an infallible or authoritative message from God? Again, a cessationist would say, yes, it is. In the scriptures, it's always infallible. It's always authoritative message from God. Therefore, the gift has ceased. Why? Because we now have God's perfect, inspired, infallible, authoritative word. Okay? And we believe with all our might in the sufficiency of scripture. We have uh, the Bible. We have God's perfect, infallible, authoritative word. This is the Bible when I do this. Okay? When I, that's about the size. Uh, man, ridiculous. Okay, I got I to gotta rein it in. Uh, we have the word. We're not adding to it. So we don't need prophecy anymore. You wouldn't, if, you, if we dug up a book in, uh, say, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls in Jerusalem, we found another book of the Bible. And they're like, we found the 67th. Let's add it. I mean, the church would burn down, especially the Protestant church, to get that book out of there. We're not adding anything to God's closed canon. And so a cessationist would say, so why, if we're not going to add to the Bible, why would we have authoritative, infallible, prophetic speech just because it's not written down, it's still out there? Does that make sense? So the core of this is sufficiency of Scripture. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We have everything we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. Okay, that's the sufficiency of scripture. So if prophecy is also extra infallible authoritative speech, that threatens that. You see that, right? How someone could just show up and say, I know God said this, but here's what God is also saying, and there you go, deal with it. Obey it or you're in sin in the same way, obey the scriptures or you're in sin. Several years ago, uh, I was in Charleston, South Carolina. There was a weird time where everyone that I knew went on vacation to Charleston, and Jeff was one of those people, and he and Casey went, and so we drove from Charlotte where we were going to seminary down there. Uh, and I don't know if he remembers this, uh, but we were walking by this real historic old church, and there was a sign out front uh, that had a rainbow background, and it said, God is still speaking. What is that sign saying? I know you, you know, conservatives got your Bible, and it says some not so great things about accepting and affirming and praising the LGBTQ uh, plus lifestyle, but... Clearly, we've evolved. Clearly, we see that God is loving. And clearly, you know, the people who wrote that thing are a little, you know, not with the times. God is still speaking, right? You see that message. You see how that threatens sufficiency. When we would go and say, hey, look, here's a clear scriptural teaching. And they would say, well, God is still speaking. That's the cessationist's heart. It's not just, oh, I saw some crazy charismatics, and so I want to reject all that stuff. Their heart is, I don't want people adding to God's word. Okay, so that's why this, this definition of, or this question of, is it infallible and authoritative is so key. If that is what prophecy is, I would be a cessationist, so would Jeff. Okay, but a continuationist would say, I don't think that is what prophecy is in the scriptures, at least every time. So again, cessationists would say, yes, it's infallible and authoritative, therefore the gifts have ceased. And a continuationist would say, no, that's not a proper definition of prophecy. Therefore, it's still around today and to be desired. So speaking as a continuationist, why why, why would you answer no to that question? Well, first of all, prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New is not just one thing. We see, yes, Isaiah show up to Israel and say, you're in sin. Babylon's going to come wipe you out. Uh, You know, Jeremiah say, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years and you're going to be brought back. We see that type of Thus says the Lord's speech, but we also see things like Saul walking along and God saying he's going to be the next king and anointing him with the spirit and he just starts spewing out prophecy and people are just kind of confused as to what's going on. Is that the same thing that's happening to Isaiah and Jeremiah? I'm not quite sure, more of a kind of ecstatic utterance. And then David, King David and Nathan. So David, his whole army's off at war, he's not. He's chilling at home, which is a bad sign. He walks out on his balcony, does one of the king's stretches, sees a naked lady bathing, which apparently was normal, uh, and tells his guys, go get her. He sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant, and he tries to cover it up, and then when he can't cover it up, has her husband murdered, and he's hiding this sin. And what happens? Nathan comes to him, and he just knows. He somehow has this just divine insight. The prophet Nathan has this divine insight, tells him the fun story uh, that we all saw in the VeggieTales movies of the sheep uh, getting taken, and then the quickest sermon application of all time, you, you're the man, right? So there's something happening there. It's not Isaiah saying, thus says the Lord, here's this real long message that's going to be written down. Here is simply just 
divine insight into a situation. So it's not really one thing. And then in the New Testament as well, we again see Jesus foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, talking about uh, the second coming and things like that. But we also see several stories of just this kind of divine insight, not an infallible authoritative message. So the story of of the sinful woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And what do the Pharisees say? If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching his feet. Okay, nothing to do with a, a message Jesus is speaking, just insight, being able to see clearly some sort of divine insight. We saw two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13 too, again, Paul talking about love, but he says, if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Prophecy is also grouped just with having understanding, seeing rightly. So some sort of divine insight as well. And then uh, a very commonly used example, Paul at the end of Acts is done with his missionary journeys and he's journeying back to Jerusalem. And as he's going, several people are trying to stop him. They know he's going to get arrested. They know people are going to try and kill him. So look at Acts 21, 4 through 14. This is Luke speaking. And having sought out the disciples, we were staying there for seven days. And through the Spirit, notice that, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So through the Spirit, telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. The next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came uh, came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his, his own feet in his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and uh, said, let the will of the Lord be done. So we see two different groups of people in the spirit telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul saying, no, I'm going. If prophecy is infallible, authoritative speech, Paul has just massively, obviously, in Acts, sinned. And we know from the rest of Acts, he's doing exactly what the Lord is calling him to do. Okay, so if a prophetic word is always infallible and authoritative, Paul would be in sin. We know that's not the case. So, again, a continuationist would say, I don't think prophecy is necessarily an infallible, authoritative message. Therefore, it doesn't threaten the sufficiency of Scripture. Bible hand motions, okay? doesn't threaten the sufficiency of Scripture. So a really broad uh, definition of prophecy is supernatural insight into a situation. Supernatural insight into a situation that could lead to you speaking, but also could not. A cessationist would add the words infallible and authoritative to that definition. Okay, they would say, because they answered the question, yes. So they would add, it's an infallible, authoritative, supernatural insight into a situation that you speak. Uh, But that's our kind of broad definition that, uh, yeah, that is for continuationists. And then you add the words infallible, authoritative for cessationists. Okay, now look back at verse 1. Let's tackle tongues, everybody's favorite. Uh, Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men 
but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, their, their, their comfort. Okay, so what is tongues? What is the first time we see kind of the gift of tongues working in uh, the New Testament? Does anybody know? Acts, yeah, Acts 2. So Jesus ascends, he's been crucified, he's risen, he ascends to the Father, he tells the disciples the, the Father will send the Spirit. They're gathered together praying, the Spirit falls, tongues of fire appear above their heads, and they just start speaking. And this massive crowd that was in Jerusalem hears them, and it's such a spectacle that they're accused of what? Being drunk. Yeah, and Peter's like, it's 9 a.m., okay, we don't go that hard, okay? So... They're accused of being drunk, but there's people from all these different cultures speaking all these different languages, and they're amazing. They say, we hear them in our own language. So the disciples, again, there's not a billion of them. There's 12. They're able to speak, at that point, 11, I guess. They're able to speak, and the massive crowd of thousands, 3,000 are saved after Peter's sermon, so there's at least 3,000, are able to hear them, people from all over the world, in their own language. It's meant to be this kind of reversal of the Tower of Babel where man was rebelling against God and building his own kingdom. And so God confuses their language and they spread across the world. Now, here in Acts 2, the people have gathered again, but this time God's unconfusing the language to build his kingdom. You see that? So that's the first time we see Acts. The primary purpose seems to be evangelism. I'm on purpose speaking to these people. They're understanding the, the spirit is convicting their heart and they're being brought into the kingdom. They're, they're converted, repenting and being baptized and being brought into uh, the kingdom. So we see that in Acts 2. Here in Corinth, there seems to be something different. Again, the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, like in Acts, but to God. For no one understands him, versus Acts, where literally everybody's understanding him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So it seems like at the base level, what's happening in Corinth is this Prayer, prayer language, if you want to say it that way. Just what's prayer in its most basic form? Speaking to God. Speaks not to men, but to God. So some of the key questions around uh, the gift of tongues that are debated uh, across all lines are, what, if this is a language, what type of language is it? Is it just a known human language, kind of like what we see in Acts 2, English, German, Swahili, right? Just known human languages, that's, that's typically what most cessationists would say. It's that. It ceased, but that's what it is. Second, is it human languages plus some sort of angelic language? Still a language, but some sort of language spoken in heaven, not spoken on the earth. And we seem to see that in 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. So the question would be, when Gabriel and Michael you know, or having coffee, what are, they, what are they speaking to one another? Okay, what, what do the angels speak? Is there some sort of human language, but then also angelic language spoken in heaven? Most continuationists would say that's what it is. And then the third uh, kind of answer is it's just ecstatic, non-cognitive language, just kind of sounds where you see people either barking like a dog, the things that look really chaotic, where people are almost having an out-of-body uh, experience. That's what most uh, hyper-charismatic or Pentecostals would say. If you've been watching the Beatles documentary on Disney+, Plus, if you don't support Disney, that's fine. Some of us do secretly, not me. But anyway, uh, George Harrison leaves, and so the Beatles are kind of blown off steam, and Yoko, who apparently, I don't even know who the Beatles are before this, Yoko gets into the mic and just starts like screaming constantly, and I was like, that's what I've seen when people are speaking in tongues a lot of the times. They're just like going crazy. I don't know if they did drugs before. 
Did people do drugs in the 60s? I, I wasn't born yet. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's, that's a third answer. Most cessationists and most continuationists would say, take that one off the table. That's not what it is. Most kind of uh, far, far into the spectrum Pentecostals would say that's exactly what it is. So that's, those are the three questions. What type of language it is? And then secondly, is it a public language or is it a private language? Is it this private prayer language or is it meant, kind of like in Acts 2, for public evangelism? And it seems like it just depends on the context. Even we'll see today, Paul's going to say, you know, speaking in tongues is for the building up of self. But if you do it in church, make sure there's an interpreter there. So it can be both, but it seems primarily for uh, private prayer, but it can be used publicly if you just do it in the right way. So our, our super broad definition for tongues is supernaturally given foreign speech. And we would take that third option off the table, not just non-cognitive noise, but either you know, human speech or angelic languages. So supernaturally given foreign speech. Okay, so prophecy, tongues, we're defined, we're good to go, no more debate. You don't need to read any books on this. I just helped you, you're welcome. Let's get back to Corinth. Okay, here's what the Corinthians have done. They've taken tongues and they've taken prophecy and they've elevated them above all the other gifts, probably because they're the most public, therefore they get you the most praise, right? Remember what's driving them. It's not love, it's pride, it's selfishness. So they've elevated them above the rest of the gifts and it seems they've elevated tongues even above prophecy because it looks more spiritual. What looks more spiritual? Me speaking in a language you understand or me speaking in some language you have no idea about? You would think a natural human response would be like, wow, the Spirit's really doing something to that guy. And so it seems like they have this obsession with tongues where they've elevated it above uh, all the other gifts because it seems much more miraculous. So that's the situation in Corinth as far as we can tell. Look at verse 4. Paul's gently kind of correcting them here. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself and the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want uh, you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So again, Paul, remember chapter 12, right how this started. I don't want you to be misinformed when it comes to the spiritual gifts. Paul giving them this kind of loving correction and saying, first of all, notice both gifts are good. He's not saying tongues bad. He says, I want you all to speak in tongues, which, by the way, doesn't mean that you will all speak in tongues. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Of, there's this Im implication that we don't all have all the gifts. That's the point of the body relying on many members. But Paul's desire, I want you all to speak in tongues. It's not bad. It's good. But when you're in the gathering, when you're in church, the goal isn't the building up of self. The goal is to build up your brother's and sisters, and prophecy is what does that, okay? So again, here's, here's the big point. The goal of the gifts isn't how it makes you look. It's how it actually edifies your brothers and your sisters in Christ. The Corinthians are craving what makes them look more spiritual because it makes them look better rather than craving what is more spiritual, which is what builds up the church, Okay, so notice, this can be very easy to miss. They're using the gifts, but what's the motivation? They're doing all the things. They're using their spiritual gifts. They're doing the religious service, but what's the motivation? How it makes them look. Pride, selfishness, their own glory. Sin is not obvious. One of the greatest 
tricks of the enemy, of the devil, is that he appears as an angel of light. False teaching, Paul says, itches the ears. Why is the prosperity gospel the most popular form of Christianity? Because who wouldn't want to hear, God wants to make you wealthy and healthy and prosperous in all that you do. Despite the fact that Jesus says, you want to follow me, pick up your torture device and let's go, right? Why is it the most, of course you want to hear that. Joel Osteen's smiling face, who wouldn't be like, man, I want to go to that guy's church and find thousands of dollars hidden in the wall or whatever happened this past week. Okay, so that's what sin does. It's deceptive. I read a pastor this past week that said, one of the symptoms of the disease of sin is that it makes you think you're healthy. There's a way, as St. Augustine said, to have a, a, a vice clothed in virtue. You look a certain way on the outside, but it's feeding an evil idol of pride or selfishness or pursuing your own glory on the inside. There's a way to be kind to others that's really just to make them like you. There's a way to re, uh, lead a Bible study, not so that others may fall in love with God's word and fall in love with him, but to make them think, man, that guy's a really good teacher. I've never heard it put that way before. Right? There's, there's this craving. Why is there a craving always for something new? It's because we have the craving for, wow, this man really has this wisdom and insight. You see what that is. That's vice clothed in a virtue. That's self-righteousness clothed in kindness. You could use your gifts. You could. Outwardly look, the, look great. You could use your gifts, but inwardly it could be feeding an idol. And why do we do that? Why do we constantly have this desire for our own glory because deep down you were created to know and love your creator but we know what happens to that story three chapters in we take him off the throne put ourselves on the throne and since Genesis 3 we are constantly obsessed with filling that void that was meant to be filled by him and so what do we do we trample others to get it We'll use others for approval. We'll use others for esteem. We'll, use other, we'll crush others for it and we'll crush ourselves because that's never something that someone else can fill. The only way, C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity, the only way to really be humble, to only be a true, uh, the only way to really be a truly humble person is when you see that all that acceptance that you crave is perfectly, infinitely found in your Savior. And he has the very famous line, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, right? The people that are always like, oh, sorry, I'm so boring or whatever. They're just as self-obsessed as, uh, obsessed as the prideful people. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You don't have to use one another to, to meet this craving in your heart. If it's totally, infinitely satisfied in a father that has adopted you, a savior that has redeemed you and washed you clean, and a spirit that is is indwelling you, changing you constantly. Imagine the reality, not just if this was, you know, possible, but the reality that God knows the depths of your heart far worse than you could even imagine. He knows every thought that you would never dare utter out loud. And he still says, I want that person in my family. Living in the reality of that, you never have to crush anybody again. You never have to look at somebody else and say, what can I get from them? You never fall into the sin of the Corinthians where you do all these great gifts to look so holy. Why? So that other people think you're so holy. To other people think, wow, what a great, what a great teacher that guy is. I've never heard it explained like that. Why are you doing that? You don't need to. If you're a believer, that void has been satisfied. You can be humble, not thinking less of yourself, just thinking of yourself less. What freedom to lay down that ridiculous burden 
that you don't need to carry. Experiencing thinking of yourself less. Tim Keller talks about just the freedom of self-forgetfulness. I don't have to constantly be worried about, did I say that right? What is everybody thinking of me? I just walked in the room. Are my clothes okay? Just how exhausting it is to constantly be self-diagnosing when you could experience the freedom of knowing I'm accepted by the only one whose opinion matters. Someone who looks at me and sees his perfect spotless son because I've been brought into the family as a child of the living God. The Corinthians have forgotten it. We often forget it. And as a result, we're paralyzed by our own pride. Corinthians using their gifts, but for selfish means. So that's Paul's first point. The gifts, the goal of the gifts isn't to fuel that idol. It's actually to build up everyone else. It's to build up everyone else. And the second point is just how those gifts. So that's the goal of the gifts. Second point, how do those gifts fail? How do we fail at doing that? Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, even if lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp uh, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Do we use bugles anymore? Isn't that that you put those on your fingers and eat them? I read that and I was like... Okay, I look at the Greek on this. I don't know what a bugle is. It's like a trumpet for like, you know, the Revolutionary War. Uh, anyway, okay, so Paul's moving on. How do your gifts fail? And he gives them two examples. Gives them a personal example from Paul himself, and then he gives them a musical example. Carl's ears are, are pepping up. Is the French horn going to show up in here? We'll see, Carl. Uh, so his first personal example. If I come to you speaking in tongues, you're not going to benefit from it, Paul says, unless... I bring some sort of revelation or teaching or prophecy or something that you can understand. If I come speaking in a language you don't understand, guess what? You're not going to understand. This is a real simple sermon. But if I say something to you that you can't understand, you'll understand and therefore benefit. Okay, even I, the Apostle Paul, if I do what you're doing, O Corinthians, I stand up, I scream in a tongue, and everyone's just like, wonder what he said. No one's benefiting. You're building up yourself. You're not building up the church. Secondly, he gives two examples of uh, instruments that play distinct notes that are meant, you know, for our enjoyment. I have been at churches with music leaders who are not gifted music leaders. And let me tell you, it was rough. I mean, it was super sanctifying because the whole time I'm like, Father, I am so sorry that I'm just constantly thinking of how bad this guy is at guitar. And then I would come to Parkway and like weep because finally distinct notes were being played and I could understand why God gifts people in music, right? Paul's simply just saying, how can we enjoy the music if bad notes are being played? Similarly, how are we get ready for war if the bugle is blown by somebody who can't, you know, do it well? I don't know if this is like the bum 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 when they're raising the flag in the war movies. Is that what the bugle is? We'll Google it later. Uh, my little boy, Harvey, my two-year-old, we were just at my uncle and aunt's for Thanksgiving, and one of their kids has a trumpet, and Harvey, it's like the size of him, so he was kind of lugging it around and trying to blow in it, and it was just spit sounds. And I was like, man, I was studying this text, and I was like, if, that was, if Harvey was sent out to get everyone ready, that army is going to lose that war because everyone's going to be sleeping, and they're like, why is this two-year-old blowing the bugle? So, again, if it's not giving off its distinct notes, No one's going to be able to get ready. And then look at verse 9. So with yourselves, now that I've given you these two examples, so with yourselves, if with your uh, tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning, again, this is very practical, if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So in the same way with the, the music examples, Paul's just simply saying, if your speech is unintelligible, it's going to fail. It's not going to edify. Nobody's going to know what you're saying. Okay? So... Uh, several years ago, I, I know we always, we harp on Germany here at Parkway and we're always like, Tim loves Germany, but there's another country that we hate more, France. Okay. Now, let me tell you, I would never say this publicly, but I love the French. I love France. Uh, and so one year we were visiting my wife's family and we decided to run off to Normandy and we were sitting, you know, there's very touristy because America's like, France, boo, World War II, yes, Normandy's where we'll go. Uh, and so Claudia and I were eating at this nice cafe and just gazing into one another's eyes as you do before children come along and we're just in love in France eating, and I see two uh, Americans, a couple, walking down the way, and they're going to come into our restaurant, and the hostess was behind me, and I knew they were Americans because of their general look. They looked like me, which means no style, right? Uh, and I also knew they were Americans because, be careful with what you do, with what I'm about to say, they were, they were wearing maroon shirts with a certain Texas school on it. Don't, don't do your thing because it's not a good story that I'm about to tell about these people, uh, so they walk in, we're in France. It's really important that you know that. I'm gazing at Claudia and I hear them behind me and I hear these words. Hola, uh, dos people. So some Spanish and some English in France. Uh, and so those people clearly thought, we're in a not America country. What's a non America language? Spanish and some English. Uh, and so if you're ever wondering why the French hate you, those people are why, okay? So, yes, uh, if you speak a language that's unintelligible, luckily the hostess spoke English and was like, yeah, come here, I'll get you two seats. Uh, but if, if, you're, if you speak a language that's not intelligible, it's not going to be of any use. That's Paul's point here. Your gifts fail when they don't build up the church. Simple. Your gifts fail when they don't build up the church. Look at verse 12. This could be the, the core of this entire passage. So with yourselves... Since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel. Put all your effort into, strive to excel in building up the church with yourselves. Now that we've done this preliminary, you know, teaching, since you're eager, strive to excel in building up the church. You want the Spirit to show up in your church, strive to excel and building up the church. Or to say it another way, you want the Spirit to show up, do what the Spirit wants, which is the building up of your brothers and sisters. The irony of most kind of charismania craziness is it is exactly how the Corinthians are behaving. I mean, it's exactly how the Corinthians are behaving. No, just, just chaos in the name of the Spirit showing up. There's this eager manifestations for the Spirit that the Corinthians have and that many of us have today. And how do we, what do we, what do, we do with that eager manifestation? Just chaos. And let me just comfort you. There is very clear instructions from Jesus about what does it look like when the Spirit shows up. I don't know why I put that in quotes. Spirit shows up. Having a lot of hand motions can be unhelpful sometimes. Uh, so we've, we've gone back to this, this section before, the upper room discourse in John, chapter 13 through 17. John decided in his gospel to give us five chapters of one conversation. 
of Jesus saying, I'm going away. I know you're troubled about this. Let me comfort you. Let me prepare you. And he primarily talks about two things. I want you guys to be a community of love. People are going to know you're my disciples by how much you love one another. We looked at that two weeks ago. And secondly, spends almost all of his time talking about, I'm going to go and the Spirit's going to come down. I'm going to go to the Father's right hand and the Father will send the Spirit. Now, here's the key question. What is the Spirit going to do when he shows up? And luckily, Jesus answers that question incredibly thoroughly. First of all, he's the helper. He's going to comfort you. That's the first thing. I'm going to go. You're worried about it. And he's, he's, he's going to comfort you. You're not going to be stressed because I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The comforter will come. And then the next thing, what is he going to do? John 16a, he's going to convict the world of sin. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts of sin. What's next? He's going to bear witness about Jesus. John 15, 26. And when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What's the next thing he's going to do? John 16, 13. He's going to guide us into all truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak uh, speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will deliver to you the things that are to come. And then lastly, he glorifies Jesus. John 16, 14. He will glorify me, and and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's often uh, people who say like, We don't give the Spirit his due enough. The Spirit must feel bad that we're talking so much about the Father and Jesus. We never talk about him. What is the Spirit's motivation in coming? I want you glorifying Jesus Christ. I want you to glorify the Son. So, summary, what does it look like when the Spirit is at work in your church? People are being convicted of their sin. Truth is being proclaimed. Christ is being exalted and we're comforted. Where is the Corinthian nonsense in the midst of all that? Nowhere. Nowhere. And that is exactly what happens in the first great awakening. 300 years ago, as the spirits pulled out or poured out all over New England, you see chaos, but it's because people are tearing their clothes. They're so overwhelmed with their sin. They're crying out to God, begging for salvation, for him to forgive them, and they exalt Christ. They're not going to work because they're having so many Bible studies. And Jonathan Edwards has to be like, okay, God also wants you to go to work and provide for your families, right? But it's, they're convicted of their sin. They're exalting Jesus Christ. Disciples are being made. They're being comforted from the anguish over their sin because they see their Savior. That's what it looks like. If you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, see what happens. See what Jesus says is going to happen when the Spirit shows up. And again, uh, what the Corinthians are doing and what a lot of, you know, modern day, uh, more hyper-charismatic circles do is they confuse the gift giver with the gift. They take the gift, they say no thank you to the gift giver. They say no thank you to the spirit and they take his gifts. And that's why you see a lot of the just craziness. That's why you saw, whatever, a year ago, Bethel Church brought a staff on stage and did a wizard spell to end racism, like just mixing the spirit with witchcraft or wizard craft. I don't know what it is. I know we're fans of Gandalf. He's still doing magic, okay? Uh, But the good news is racism stopped, like instantly. It was crazy all across the world. No more racism. Uh, That's not true. Um, That's why you see that kind of stuff. You take the gift, forget the gift giver. Who cares what Jesus says about spirit convicting sin? That's kind of boring. Where's my magic show, right? That's the Corinthian spirit, and that's most of modern-day charismatic craziness spirit as well. That's why you see, again, the spirit told me. And ironically, it lines up perfectly with what they already want to do. It's exactly backwards 
You don't use the Spirit. The Spirit uses you. And how does he want to use you? According to the word that he wrote. To build up the church, not yourself. He wants you to build up the church. Since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's how your gifts fail. Lastly, how do they succeed? How do your gifts succeed? Not when you use them on yourself, but actually to build up the church. Look at verse 13. For therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays and my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, uh, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough but the other person is not being built up. Again, Paul just repeating himself over and over again, which probably shows how deep the Corinthian pride goes. The fact that he has to say for 19 verses, basically the same thing. Stop building up yourself, build up the spirit. But how do our gifts succeed? Particularly, how does the gift of tongues succeed in the Corinthian gathering? Have an interpreter there. Okay, have an interpreter. Take it out of the realm of unintelligibility. We don't know what he's saying. To Oh, wow, someone just told me what he's saying, right? Into the realm of intelligibility. Again, very practical. Have an interpreter to know what you're saying and say what you're saying, and then everyone else can be built up. Now, I just made fun of those two Aggies in France. Now I'm going to tell an embarrassing story about me in France. The French love me, okay? You can ask anybody. Uh, they love me. Why? Because when I go to France, I don't do what you do and speak Spanish and English. I have my interpreter with me, my wife, who speaks French, and they look at me, and they're like, good on you, mate. Uh, apparently, they're Australian. Uh, so, I love bakeries. I love bread. That explains my physique. In France, they're really good at bread making. So, uh, I will go, as Claudie's just like drinking in the nice French air, I'll say, I've got our, you know, I'll get our morning baker, baked goods. And Claudie will say, okay, when you go in there to order, say these words. I'm like, got it. And she'll tell me what to say. And I'm like, uh, I always pretend I'm looking around like I haven't, don't have something memorized. I'm like, uh, de pain au chocolat, de croissant, s'il vous plaît. Uh, two chocolate croissants. Let me interpret. I don't want to send uh, two chocolate croissants and two croissants. Uh, and most of the time it works, and I leave with my bag, and I'm super excited. But there was one time that the lady looked back at me, the bakeress, the female baker, uh, and said uh, something to me in French. I didn't know clue what she was saying, and I just said, oui. And I walked out with two of literally everything in the store. So I walked out with, and I walked up to Claudia, and I was like, uh, it, went, it went south in a hurry. But we have food for the week, so you're welcome. Uh, if I have my interpreter there, everything's great. If my interpreter's not there, it is, it is not profitable, right? That's essentially what Paul's saying. If you're going to speak in tongues and no one understands you, have someone who uh, can <laughs> know what you're saying or you yourself know what you're saying so that people can be edified. And look how important this goal is to Paul. Look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, humble brag. Uh, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, so Paul firstly is showing how important uh, he thinks tongues is. Again, he doesn't think it's a, a bad gift. He's like, look, 
I speak more than all you guys combined, okay? Humble brag, Paul. Secondly, he's showing how primary it is to build up the church. How primary it is to build up the church. If I don't have an interpreter with me, I'd rather not use the gift at all and speak five words in a language everyone can understand than spew a bunch of unintelligible speech and everyone's just sitting there like, no, no clue, not being built up. He shows how primary he believes this. The goal of your gifts, whether you're cessationist or continuationist, is to build up the church. It's that simple. The goal of your gifts, out of the love in your heart for your brothers and sisters, is to build up the church. Essentially what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us today is at the cost of your own glory, do what's best for your brothers and sisters. Even if it doesn't make you look as flashy, again, why are they speaking in tongues? Because it looks so spiritual. Do what's best for others. And again, you knew where this was going. Who is the perfect example of that? Who is it that actually had all the glory in the universe? The king of heaven, who though he was in the form of God, does not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. What are we about to celebrate? Why are there wreaths on the wall? The eternal God, the son, the king of heaven came down, took on human flesh, became a man for our salvation. Not only that, died the most humiliating death imaginable, naked on a cross. They gambled over his clothes. They spit in his face. They mocked him. No one can make themselves lower than what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He allowed himself to be torn down so that you and I could be built up at the cost of his infinite glory. He did what was best for you and I. And so the key question, you may say, that's great. Thank you for your Jesus conclusion again. Uh, The key question is, how do we actually do that? How do we actually do what we've been talking about for all these different weeks, lay down our own pride, our own selfishness, actually serve one another, not out of a selfish motivation to get things from them, but actually for their good and actually for Jesus' glory. And let me tell you what the answer isn't, just adding another rule to your list. Okay, we're rebuked by Paul. I guess I shouldn't do this. Let me just do the right thing. If you have a wayward kid, you know, they've just gone off their they're sleeping around or whatever. Let me tell you what's not going to bring them back, saying, that's not what the Bible says. They're already breaking the rules. Why not break another one? Okay, giving them laws is never going to do it. They have to see that there is an infinitely greater joy that makes all the pleasures of the world turn to dust. That all the pursuits of their life that they're running after is nothing. It falls apart in their hands. And not only that, they have an infinitely greater joy waiting for them. They quit playing with the mud, mud pies, as C.S. Lewis says, and they have a holiday at the sea waiting for them. Same with us. Another rule will never change your heart. In fact, it'll make your sinful heart just want to break that other rule. But when you finally see that all the things that your selfishness craves to get from others is infinitely found in him, you can lay your life down. You won't just lay your life down, you'll throw your life down. You'll hate your own glory if it distracts from his glory. When you see that, when you know him, when, he's, uh, when you see that he's brought you into the divine family, you're an adopted child. You don't call uh, the God of Mount Sinai a, a, a trembling God that you want Moses to go talk to. You call him Father. You've been brought in. We can boldly approach his throne. When you see that is a reality in your life that you haven't done, he's done when you were sprinting away from him. 
then and only then can you actually take the step to say, why would I ever live for myself? My life's not mine anymore. I can finally love from this place of rest my brothers and my sisters, and I can joyfully build them up. Why would I ever want to fill this, this void in my heart that's, that's infinitely full with my own glory? But his glory is what we're after. When you see that, when you see that Jesus Christ is what fills that void, duty becomes delight. If you don't see that, it's just another rule. It'll be a duty. You can do it like the Corinthians, but it'll be a, a virtue covered in vice. When you see he is all satisfying, you can serve one another, do the duty, it becomes a delight. Do you know him or do you just know the rule? That's the key question. Do you know him or do you just know the rules? Let's pray. Father, we love you. I pray as we just had to go all over the place today, uh, theology going through a, a big chunk of your text, I pray that your spirit would just minister to us. We are humans, we're fallible, we, we're just doing our best to, to read your word and understand it and apply it to our lives, but you're the one, you're the God who, when we had no understanding, came and, and shone light into our hearts. That's who you are. You're the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so I just pray, I don't know where, where we're at, if we're frustrated because we hold this position, everything else is dumb or whatever it may be, or we're just, we're just consumed by what people think of us, or we're just prideful and we don't realize it. There's so many things that just human words can't address at the same time, but your spirit can, you know us. And so I pray that your spirit would minister to us as we take communion, as we refocus our eyes on your son, as we uh, are, are ministered to through worship. I just pray that your spirit again would minister to us. The same spirit that opened our eyes, that conversion would continue to sanctify us, that we would genuinely see sanctification, not as a difficult thing, but as a beautiful thing. We have a God who's incredibly active of uprooting the poison from our hearts. We pray that you would do it and that we would love you more, that this just wouldn't be an abstract concept, that Jesus wouldn't be an abstract concept, but we would know him personally and we would see that he knows us to our depths and still says you're mine. No one can snatch you from my hand. We pray that, Father, in his name. Amen.